0: William, William Wordsworth said, uh, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? Have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? If you haven't turned on the news yet today, there's another seven police officers shot just about two hours ago in Baton Rouge, a number of them dead. And uh, it seems like we can't escape the headlines, whether it's in our country, out of our country. Um... There's violence happening. And so, I'll put on the screen Philippians. This is Paul, uh, Paul's prayer. As he opens the book of Philippians, Philippians 1.9, he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I think in times of ease and comfort, it's easy for love in our minds to degenerate to, to a mere sentimental or emotional thing. It's a, it's a property of our emotions or how we feel. I think in difficult times, we begin to see a little bit more maybe the tenor that Paul has here that, that love and the richness of love and the depth of love and the truth of love as it works its way out in sacrifice toward others in the real world is something that needs to be built upon or fortified with knowledge and depth of insight. Love might be an emotional thing, but it's also a rational thing. And it's something that we choose and it's something that we live into as we begin to know more and more what that would require of us or what it is that we're actually trying to fix or heal or satiate in this world. So that would be my prayer this morning as we walk into this sermon and this time together, as we seek to listen to what God might say to us as as Christians who believe that God does speak, that God still speaks, that God will speak to us, and that by coming together, we are crying out in a very real sense to God that he would speak and move in our midst, that my prayer would be that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that we wouldn't crave easy answers, uh, that we wouldn't run to where it's easy, but that we would sit deep into the very real matters of this world, that we would grow in our knowledge and be able to live more faithfully as Christians. Father, so we commit that to you. We ask that you would take it, that you would baptize it in only the way that you could, that you would move in our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would somehow draw us closer to you, that you would infect us with a will, with a desire to see the world the way you do and to use our energy and our resources to pursue reconciliation, that we would be agents, ministers of reconciliation, trying to bring about, to fully bring about your kingdom on this earth so that your will would be done here as it is in heaven. Use us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn to the book of Lamentations. We're going to spend a little bit of time. We don't have a ton of time, so we're going to, we're going to do the crash course on Lamentations. Um, but Lamentations is after uh, the book of Jeremiah. It's placed there because tradition has it that possibly Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And so they're placed together in our scripture. The idea would be that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations because he is well known for writing a lot of Lamentations. Uh, he wrote one for King Josiah. When King Josiah dies, it speaks all over the Old Testament of Jeremiah and his Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote a lot of Lamentations for a specific reason. Anyone want to guess? Why would you write A bunch of lamentations Um, he didn't have a music contract it wasn't for economic gain it was because his life pretty much sucked Um, if you want to know the real reason Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet he's known as the weeping prophet he probably was handed the worst mission uh, that God has ever handed anyone or or one of them certainly would be in the the top ten And so when God is calling him into ministry to go be a prophet, he's basically calling him into a ministry that is going to start here and just progressively get worse, all the way up until this point when he gets thrown into a cistern, kind of a hollowed out cistern and and left there, only to be rescued by the conquering king um, who is sacking Jerusalem and frees Jeremiah from this well. but up until that point he is beat he is ridiculed his own family turns against him violently and physically turns against him all the way till this kind of pushing out and and being imprisoned entombed almost in this cistern he has um, one of the worst job descriptions of anyone who's ever been given a job description and he is known as the weeping prophet and he writes a bunch of Lamentations. Now, it's debated whether he actually wrote the book of Lamentations, but it certainly jives with what we know of this person's life. Now, the book of Lamentations is really interesting. It's five chapters. It's, um, it's basically a lament of the destruction and the emptying out and the, 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 the kind of becoming a wasteland of the city of Jerusalem, this once beautiful city This place where God dwelt with his people that is now being, um, that has been conquered by the Babylonians in the 500s BC and the people are moved out and it's this awful reality of the people of God going into judgment, going into exile and Lamentations is lamenting this. It's not just lamenting that this city is being emptied out but it's lamenting the very real destruction of a people group and the pain that this people group undergoes. So if if we begin, we're not going to read a ton of it, but we'll just begin with the first chunk, pick up a middle chunk, and then go to the last chunk. But in Lamentations 1, it begins and it just says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She, who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks, among, among all her lovers, there's no one to comfort her. All her friends have, have betrayed her, and they have become her enemies. And it continues on, her affliction and her harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. So this is the beginning of Lamentations, and you see that kind of carry through chapters one and chapters two. And the interesting thing is in the in the history of, of the book of Lamentations, it plays a significant role, not just for the Christian people, but for the Um, the Jewish people this is first a Jewish book and then comes into the Christian scriptures and so you have it sitting as a a prominent feature of two religious communities interestingly enough though we center on uh, different parts of this book the Jewish community has long camped primarily in chapters one and two that Jerusalem is now desolate, that that the people, the Jewish people, have been scattered into exile. And and so the, the history of this book in that community is a real fascinating one where Jewish people resonate with the fact that they still remain a scattered people, that Jerusalem has been sacked, and it was sacked again by the Romans later on. And so this theme of lamentations of the people of God being spread or scattered kind of unto the nations, if you will. And so those are the chapters that that historically Jewish people have have centered on. Historically, Christians have centered on something different. We've centered on chapter 3. So in chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 we see this kind of refrain. So you have chapters 1 and 2 about the exile and the desolation and all that goes with it. Chapter 3 is interesting and we grab this bridge in the middle. And then we have chapters 4 and 5 that we'll get to in a moment. But this bridge in the middle has historically been what Christians have grabbed hold of. Now, by the way, ever since Constantine, for the most part, Western Europe um, has been the, the Christian story. You, you cannot take Christianity out of the Western tradition post-Constantine. It's a very fascinating reality, but, but Western history, Western culture is a very Christian story as well. I think we're entering into a time where we're going to be post-West because in some sense we're going to be post-Christian. But it's, it's a very Christian story from Constantine on, and that means that it has been a very Um, triumphalistic Christian story. Uh, The the papacy, uh, the Catholic Church, its role in society at one point in time being not only religiously but politically the high point of of Western culture. But then even when the kings began to supplant the popes as the ultimate kind of authority politically, the popes still uh, held the keys religiously. And so there was this kind of this relationship between kings and popes where they would oftentimes use each other for political or economic gain Uh, If a pope wanted something legitimized, I mean, I'm sorry, if a king wanted something legitimized, he could go to the pope to try and get that legitimized spiritually so that people would come behind his campaign or recognize him as the rightful king of a certain area. And so you had this really interesting thing of these two things going back and forth. The papacy, by the way, uh, was the keys of the kingdom. And so if you go to Rome now or the Vatican, or if you just look on any symbol that really comes uh, from the papacy, it's, it's basically in the line of Peter, somebody has the keys to the kingdom. They've been invested with this kind of, this role of holding um, the doors, the locks to all things spiritual, all things heaven. That's why St. Peter is said to stand at the gates of heaven, right? Because he has the keys. Um, So the symbol is two crossed keys and so you'll see that with the hat of the Pope, the kind of um, interesting hat that goes with it and then the different coat of arms or elements from the different coat of arms of various Popes coming from different families, um, oftentimes uh, Italian families but more and more as time went on from different, the Popes coming from different parts of the Western world um, which is what's interesting now with Francis coming from Argentina. And as that begins to expand, and there's a lot of thinking that they're grooming um, various archbishops from Africa and other places so that we would eventually very soon have the first African pope, a pope from Africa. Um, But the, the, the reality is they held the keys to this kingdom. So you have a very kind of high exalted view of the role of Christianity in society, that Christianity has triumphed, that God has brought that about into this culture, whether it be Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, whatever it is, Christianity still held this prominent role in society. And so it's no doubt or or no surprise that the verses that that, that Christians tend to gravitate towards aren't the the first two chapters about Jerusalem because Rome in some sense now is the center, Europe in some sense is now the center, and we have a bit more of a triumphalistic view of Christianity with the church being at the top of culture. And so Lamentations 3.22 says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, He will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. Here are the words to one of the great hymns of the Christian tradition. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. I gotta polish up on my my Shakespearean. Um, Great is thy faithfulness, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Going back to the text, um, uh, they because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There you, you go. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. It's true, I think to the text. But it's a very celebratory hymn, isn't it? It's the Christian um, view of Lamentations. It's the Christian view, more of a celebratory aspect, which doesn't really fit with the rest of the book. Let's turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4 goes on about the destruction of the people, how the gold, it begins, how the gold has lost its luster, the fine gold become dull, the sacred gems are scattered at every street corner, how the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots in clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young. But my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert because of the thirst of the infant's tongue. By the way, it begins to be very descriptive of the journey into exile. The people of God being marched into exile and the, the kinds of things that you would expect to see with kind of a death march that way. Because of the thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. If we continue over and go down just a bit, verse 9 says this, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine, racked with hunger they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who become their food when my people were destroyed. The book of Lamentations, ladies and gentlemen, in the Bible, taking a whole place and telling a story as it unfolds, about the compassionate women who were so compassionate that they cooked their own children and that those children became food as people were being marched off in a famine context into exile. But it surely, surely must resolve, right? Because great is thy faithfulness. New mercies I see morning by morning. So surely it must uh, uh, resolve here. Um... So chapter 5 must hold the resolution, but then we get to chapter 5, and and let's just read how the book of Lamentations ends. The book of Lamentations ends with these two last verses. Well, let's read the last three verses. Um, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. And that's the the end of the book of Lamentations. Lamentations does something fascinating, I believe, for the community of God that we, we, we tend to neglect as Christians, certainly Christians in America. We don't... We don't have a category for lament. We have a category for celebration. We have a category for grief. And we have a category for wanting our grief quickly to turn to resolution so that we can go back to celebrating. We don't have a category, at least not most of us, for grief that turns into lament, lament that turns into waiting and and crying out to the Lord with no necessary end in sight. We don't have a category for lament like that. But there's something beautiful to this book being in Scripture because it shows us the worst of the worst of humankind, of depravity, of people doing evil to other people, of people experiencing true and utter tragedy. True and utter tragedy. Uh, utterly a sense of forsakenness, that God has somehow left us, that God has somehow left me. That somehow in God leaving us or me, that's not just a, an emotional reality, but it has utterly laid me to waste, to poverty, to being unable to care for my kids, to not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, of fear. That God somehow allowing me or turning me over to this situation has brought me to an utter and tragic end. And we read in the book of Lamentations this really fascinating thing that there's no time prescribed for this. It doesn't end in Lamentations. So it shows us in some sense this open-ended nature of grief and sorrow. And in this open-ended nature of grief and sorrow that we sit in in sackcloth and ashes, it still shows us something beautiful that our grief can find language and should find language as we pour ourselves out to God. The proper end of grief in our lament, in our truth-telling of how this really feels, the proper end of that is to turn it back to God in prayer. That's something beautiful. That's something that those who have suffered or been oppressed have always understood. The, the the Israelites in Egypt with their cries unto God the slaves in the, the American South with their spirituals and taking on the scriptural idea of Moses and the people of Israel that that became the dominant kind of narrative or motif or metaphor for them as a people group crying out to God with no end in sight to their suffering but knowing that the only proper end to go with this as their children are being taken away from them souls. Hold on the slave markets, as their bodies are being whipped, as they're being humiliated, as they're being kept from learning anything that would make them more human, no, you can't learn how to read. Because if you learn how to read, you're going to learn that you have dignity, and you're going to learn how to begin to somehow advocate against your owner or master to work for your freedom. You're going to be able to begin to read newspapers like the abolitionist, and to realize that other people have found their freedom. And so we're not going to let you learn how to read. And in in this situation of utter grief that has no end, and as you lament, the proper end of that was the beautiful spiritual community that grew up, the traditions that grew up in that African-American slave community, that you turn that lament to God. That that's where you're supposed to go with it. That's in the book of Lamentations. That's why it's in the Bible. It's it's what it teaches us to do. Yet we as a people don't know how to lament. And I think there's several reasons for that. One is because we're in a very formula-bound religious context. We are in a very formula-bound religious context. But the formula-bound Christianity that we kind of run into... It, a lot of it came after World War II with our, our increase of evangelism. A wonderful man by the name of Bill Bright in Campus Crusade had a track that kind of would help you understand the stages of becoming a Christian, of, of what it meant to get saved. And one of the very first kind of lines or, or driving thoughts in the four spiritual laws, does anyone know what it was? Premise one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you. And has a wonderful plan for your life. Now I, I, I think we could parse that out. And make it be true. But I think the way we receive that. Probably um, just the way it hits our ears. Prima fascia would, would be what we'd say. In first glance in, in philosophy. But, but the way it hits us. Is really formulaic, come to God because there's going to be a transaction because if you come to God, if you lay your life down um, at God's feet, he's got this wonderful plan for your life that he's going to hand you. And I think a lot of us in the last, beyond how old I am, but the last 50, 60 years of American Christianity kind of bought into that idea that somehow by coming to God, all things would begin to work out for us and they would begin to work out somehow in concert with our, our notion of an American dream. That in some sense, prosperity or health or, or favor or blessing, kind of like in the hymn, that, that sense of triumphalism would begin to work itself out. By the way, I love that hymn too. I'm not trying to diss on too many things, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to show you the trajectory of this. And so it begins to be a bit transactional or a bit formulaic. And so if I go to God, then this is kind of going to be the trajectory. And we also, we have other formulas, too, that if we come to church and we hear, and and Pete would know this and others that maybe have gone to seminary or studied these things, if you say the word gospel enough times in a sermon, or you say Jesus with the right intonation, or you kind of drop little nuggets, it doesn't matter really what you say People are going to feel really good because we came together and it was really spiritual. I mean, there's a formula to this. You you sprinkle it around enough and then people walk out and it was a good Sunday. Why was it a good Sunday? Because it felt like a spiritual kind of thing. And so I've run into this over the years, many times that you come in and if you don't say those words, what's what's the opposite of that? I don't know. That was kind of a confusing Sunday, Pastor. I, I didn't really hear you mention the word Jesus. And I didn't hear the, the word God. I mean, I'm a bit confused. And so that's why Pete asked me to share this story again. So if you've heard it before, um that's okay, but that's why I was so perplexed at the Justice Conference in Philadelphia when I went in to a room full of pastors, about 40 of them, all facing forward, and it was kind of more of a dialogue context. Jeremy Courtney, our friend, was hosting it and kind of leading it, and Tam and I were standing in the back. We had to leave in about 20, 25 minutes, so we were just standing against the back, and in this suite, this kind of room, this conversation was going on about biblical justice, and a young, maybe 30-something pastor at some point just interjected, raised his hand and interjected, said, hey, all this justice stuff is great and all, but at the end of the day, I want Jesus, not justice. And everybody, again, because it was sprinkled in there, right, the right phraseology, everybody kind of went, ooh, ah. And, And kind of a couple people started cropping up and saying things. And Jeremy's at the front of the room, and he can see me at the back of the room, and he can see that I'm just squirming. And so he kind of took a comment or two and then just kind of, Ken, <laughs> thoughts, do you have any thoughts? And so I kind of, I knew I had to leave, so I talked really fast and kind of just tried to blurt it all out, and, and then it kind of went, and then Tam and I had to scoot out. So a couple people came up to me afterwards, and they were like, were you angry? I was like, no, I wasn't, I wasn't angry. Like, I got to say what I wanted to say. Like, I, we just had to go, that's all. Like, I wasn't upset. But what I said was simply this. Um, It's an absolute category fallacy to take Jesus as if it's just a word, J-E-S-U-S, on a piece of cardboard. And the word justice, like it's a word J-E-U-S-T-I-C-E, like it's a word, English word on cardboard. And you got these two pieces of cardboard, and it's like, well, which one's better? Well, I'll take the one with the with Jesus written on it, that seems like a better piece of cardboard than the one with the word justice written on it. That's kind of what we're saying when we say at the end of the day, I want Jesus, not justice. Here's the thing. Um, If you go to philosophy, you have two different kinds of of things. You have substances and you have properties. People are substances. Substances are the things that have properties. Properties are the things that are had, okay? Okay. I am a substance, I'm a person, I have the property of being a male, of being the son of John and Bonnie Weitzma, of, of being a father, That's a property I have, I, I have the property of being intuitive on the Myers-Briggs, but substances have properties, properties are the things that are had, does that make sense? Interestingly enough, some properties that we have are essential, some are non essential if somebody goes to Afghanistan and, um, heaven forbid, hits an IED and loses a leg in an explosion, are they still, are they still uh, Fred or Greg? Are they still who they, they are? And the answer is yes. They're still, their identity is still intact. So the property of having two legs is a non-essential human property. You can, you can lose a leg or both legs and still be Who you were. Does that make sense? Some properties are non-essential. Some are essential. You couldn't talk about me as not being the son of John and Bonnie Weitzma and still be talking about me. Um, You couldn't talk about me as having a different kind of personality and in some ways still be talking about me. That's why Alzheimer's is such an awful kind of of thing that begins to happen. Because it begins to cut at what we, we know to be very Uh, defining parts of human identity. Does that make sense? So when you come to something like justice and you're looking at Jesus, Jesus came as the justice of God, to work about justice, restorative justice for God's people because there was no justice in the land, back to Isaiah 59. And as he's working this stuff out, making things as it ought to be, he, he literally, in love, sacrificial love, dies for our sins so that God can extend this grace and re- reconcile us back to himself. So in this whole kind of um, retributive justice kind of way. And then God, uh, Jesus extends this calling of reconciliation and restorative justice to us as the body of Christ that as we continue on into society that we're going to work this and he says my command to you and in fact my only command my new command is that you love each other as I've loved you that that as you've seen me love people I want you to love others that way And, and he goes even further than that and he says that if you don't do that, if you, if you don't love someone, it, it's as if you're not loving me. And if you love somebody, Matthew 25, it's as if you're loving me. In justice, we find out it's not only this defining thing of Jesus, but also of God, that it's the footstool of the throne. It's his scepter, that it's this kind of defining characteristic of God. God is just, just like God is love, Right? So the interesting thing about Jesus is if we were to separate out justice from Jesus, we wouldn't still be talking about Jesus. He would not be the same entity or substance or person. Justice is a defining, essential characteristic of Jesus, meaning there has never been a time in the history of the world where you had Jesus and you didn't also have justice, Does that make sense? Justice is an inextricable part of Jesus. So you can't put Jesus' name on a piece of cardboard and the word justice on a piece of cardboard and say which one's more valuable. It's a complete category fallacy. We wouldn't be able to comprehend who Jesus is without knowledge of or the presence of justice. Just like we couldn't take God and say, let's try and understand God, but let's put his holiness or his love off to the side. Now, what kind of a person is God? What kind of a father is he? Well, I, it, I don't know. I can't begin to answer that question until you sneak the love and the holiness back in because I don't really think we're talking about God when you've put those other things on the shelf because those are essential characteristics of who God is. So I basically did a quick version of that with this group of pastors. And I said, so the point is, You can't make the comment that at the end of the day, I'd rather have Jesus, not justice. To have Jesus is to have justice, or to have a regard for justice, or to understand what justice is, or to desire its fullness to come about on earth as it is in heaven. And so you have this interesting thing where we want to live by formulas. And so we end up not pushing into a deeper depth of knowledge and level of insight that informs our love. Our love begins to be a bit more kind of just on the surface Christian love that we feel very spiritual. We like to feel very spiritual. And there's little formulas or little pieces that just kind of keep us our blood sugar level or our Christian blood sugar level kind of level. And, we, you know, and if we crash, we, we get some more of that. And, I'm, and I'm, I know I'm overstating it for a fact, but please hear me. We're not supposed to live by formula. We're supposed to live by faith. Formula would not have helped Jeremiah at all. Jeremiah, what's wrong with you, dude? You're crying again. This is like the 500th day in a row. I'm going to nickname you the weeping prophet. What's wrong with you? Well, it's pretty bad. My family's turned on me. Jeremiah, don't you know that God loves you? Has a wonderful plan for your life. What are you doing wrong? Maybe, maybe you need to go back to the drawing board because you know, obviously, if you were following God correctly, you would be prospering. Formula is not going to help Jeremiah. What's going to help Jeremiah? Faith. Man, I cannot see one minute. Um, beyond the the current one that I'm in. I can't see one minute. I'm in a cistern. I don't know when I'm going to get out of the cistern. I don't have a formula for this, and spiritual language isn't going to help me. By the way, the book of Esther, it's about how God thwarted genocide that would have wiped out, if not all, a significant amount of his people. The book of Esther, it's a beautiful name. Such a beautiful name that um, my second daughter's named Esther. But it's a book on God stepping in and and preventing genocide and this this big injustice. Fascinating thing. It's kind of known as the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. Jesus tells a story like, how do we get to heaven? Like, haven't I already told you this? God is love. Love is a really big part of this. Obey my commands about loving and, and well, what does love really look like? And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. Remember the story? The guys on the, the road to, Jamaica, uh, to Jericho, they pass the guy that's been beaten. But the guy that's not a Jewish person, who, who doesn't have the right faith or the right religion or the right pedigree, that guy stops, helps the person, takes the person to the inn, uses his own, own money to kind of invest into this person being restored to health, and then says, I'll check on him later. And Jesus says, who? who do you think was the loving one? Who do you think was the neighbor in this story? I'm trying to define love for you. What does it look like to really love? Jesus or God never makes it into the parable um, of the Good Samaritan. So we see the book of the Bible of God working to forestall this great injustice and genocide we see Jesus defining love no mention of God in either passage why because love isn't about the words we sprinkle on it it's about altruism it's about understanding what it means to lay down your life for another Um, justice and things being put back the way it ought to be certainly has reference to God. But as it works out in human history, as it works out this week when we see headlines of different people protesting, or God forbid, more people being shot or killed in acts of violence, that sometimes we enter into those conversations with an understanding of what ought to be and we work for it and we talk for it. And if we don't reference God necessarily and and. And the conversation from this minute, minute one to minute 17, that's okay. Because our, our love that is steeped in knowledge and depth of insight is driving our conversation with an understanding that God is justice, that Jesus is justice, and that that should look a certain way in our culture. And so we're talking. And if someone listens to us and then asks us afterwards, you know, from minute one to minute 17, you didn't even say, Jesus, it's Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? That that the formulas are are very interesting. My daughter's cook, and my youngest daughter just took a a class on cooking. And so she's doing these pretzel balls for us like every other day, and we go cook them over the fire, and they're really good. Roll them in sugar with a little bit of cardamom, and and she does it really well. It's amazing. You know, COCC, it's beautiful, kids' cooking class. But the first thing she does is is what? She runs to the counter when I say, hey, pretzel balls, Ashlyn, go. She runs to the counter. She pulls down her what? She pulls down her recipe. What's a recipe? A formula. So that formula in in the shape of a recipe is aimed at what? Something very specific and defined. You use a recipe because you know it gets you to the thing that you're seeing, the object you desire. Recipes or formula are eyes wide open. Recipes or formula and, or formulas are eyes wide open where we have an idea of what it is we want from, from our religion or our spirituality and we're driving toward that. Or someone has given us a formula, and we think if we follow the formula or the recipe that they've given us, it will help us arrive at what it is we want or desire or, or think, think we should get. Faith is, is eyes closed. There's no recipe. There's no, I, I can't define the end of this. I don't know necessarily how it resolves. I don't know necessarily where it's going. I know that I'm trusting I know that I'm taking my lament and my grief and I'm pouring it out to God and I'm saying, I don't know where the politics in America are going. I don't know where all this violence is going. I don't know what's going on with Turkey or France or Europe or the EU. I don't know how that's affecting economies. I don't know any of this stuff, God, but as I'm lamenting and grieving, I'm kind of pouring it out to you and I'm walking by faith knowing that only as you lead me will I really be able to be found where you want me to go and I can't grab some kind of a formula and say, I know, I'll just plug this in and I'll begin to realize that wonderful life that somebody once promised me that looks a lot like prosperity and health. Um, I wanna read for you just a bit of something I wrote. Um, I've got a manuscript that I turned in two months ago on race and privilege. This is a, a little bit of a section from it, but it's on lament and I wrote this. Walter Brueggemann, In his more recent book, Sabbath as Resistance, a title that I love, writes, Sabbath in the first instance is not about worship. It is about work stoppage. It is about withdrawal from the anxiety system of Pharaoh, the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption, and the endless pursuit of private well-being. As I mentioned earlier in the book, I struggle as both a, a pastor and a teacher. I care deeply about transmitting truth, but I struggle with being a people pleaser. I know when you guys shake your heads at me. By the way, I know when you're disagreeing with me. If you don't want me to know, hide your body language. Um, Are we willing to follow Christ into the weeds where people won't respond positively or like us? Are we willing to own the fact that it is only because of our privilege that we are able to entertain that question? Lament is an oft-neglected facet of the biblical narrative and experience in today's culture. As Soon-Chon Ra writes, a friend of mine He's got a book called Prophetic Lament on the book of Lamentations. I would highly encourage you to get this, Prophetic Lament. And Soon Chan Ra says this, The scriptures testify to the importance of lament. Nearly 40% of the Psalms are laments. 40% of the Psalms. That means 40% of the life of the church or 40% of the people who would follow God could probably expect that their human experience needs to find its language in lament. Think about that. If 40% of the prayer book of the Bible is lament, then I'd say either 40% of our experience or 40% of us can probably rightly assume that we're going to experience grief and pain that would require those kinds of prayers. 40% of the Psalms are laments. Interestingly, Sungchan Chan notes, A quick glance through the Christian Copyright Internationals list, a a book, kind of a list of Christian songs, reveals that less than 10% of those songs would even remotely qualify as laments. In other words, the worship songs we're singing do not match the biblical testimony. Scripture calls us to lament injustice, not to rush in, not to brush past, and not to excuse injustice as simply being the responsibility or fault of some other generation, I've often had a hard time preaching on Easter. My church knows this. More importantly, my wife knows this. She reminds me every year not to make the mistake of redoing the judgmental sermon of several Easter's ago where, I something, uh, where something got under my saddle and I railed against the East, uh, American Easter bunny, Easter baskets, pastel clothing, and nice dinner at the mother-in-law's house tradition that we had built up around Jesus' resurrection rather than the radical world upending truth that it really is. I, I still... Still wondering why that didn't go over well. Um, despite regretting the judgmental tone of the Easter sermon from a couple of years ago, I meant every word I said in it. It infuriates me when we take stories like Easter, stories that stand against the way of the world, and we tame them. We take a narrative that is all about killing the self and turn it into a consumer holiday. This year I had the same angst when Easter morning rolled around, and when my friend Pete asked me what I had wanted to talk about, I said, race in America. Talking about race puts a finger on the faith required to follow Christ more than Easter baskets, doesn't it? It isn't a happy or exciting topic, but it certainly seems to be directly correlated with the story of Christ breaking into the world and our responsibility to continue his work. It also seems like it might lead to a lot more good uh, in practice than excesses of chocolate for kids. How can we have Easter without Good Friday, resurrection without the cross, celebration, "...without lament. When one part of the body of Christ suffers, the whole part suffers. How can we not share in the experience or narrative of others in the body of Christ? It is only in keeping our focus on ourselves that we are allowed to reduce the work of God down to self-help or consumable spiritual goods that can fill me or give me a spiritual experience when at the same moment across national, racial, or socioeconomic divides stands my brother or sister in suffering and lament." Maybe Oscar Romero said it best, there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. Um, it's interesting, there's been studies where people are asked when, when they say they don't like things the way they are in America, and they say, well, where would you, where would you go back to? What time period? Like, wh-? So if things are bad now, when were they good? And most of these studies, I've seen two myself, uh, people choose the 50s. That's no surprise. Um, synthetic plastics were, were really invented or certainly were um, just exploded during World War II as we were trying to come up for alternatives to rubber. And those synthetics, those plastics, led to refrigerators and other kinds of devices that we then brought into our homes, which was amazing. And so you have refrigerators coming as, as freeways got built. And freeways got built by Eisenhower, who was the head of the Allied Command in Europe during World War II and he had seen what the Audubon had done for Hitler and being able to move troops quickly from one part of the country to the other and so we do this whole freeway system really from a, a military mind trying to say this is going to be a good thing and that allows for and and kind of goes in concert with the rise of sub- suburban neighborhoods so you see this explosion of neighborhoods outside 45 minutes outside the city And so those homes are new. So people's homes, large quantities of homes are new. The GI Bill is allowing people to buy homes for the first time on 30-year notes and and with loans from the government. And so you have this kind of interesting thing. So neighborhoods, you had Leave it to Beaver happened in the 50s. By the way, in 1944, um, the Breton... Bretton Woods Commission in New Hampshire, this this big meeting of all these allied countries came together to say, how are we going to rebuild economies after the war? 44 different countries come, and they basically tie it to the gold standard, which is partly tied to the U.S. dollar. And so for a long time, the economies of the world, the dollars, are tied to the U.S. dollar, which was, was really good for who? The U.S. And, and that lasted till 71 when Nixon uncoupled the U.S. dollar from gold and then that was the end of of the Bretton Woods kind of agreement. And so we had a beautiful explosion of industry coming off the war as, as other parts of the world were rebuilding of our dollar kind of being the standard. You had all of these kind of crazy amazing things going on. By the way, the phrase, in God we trust, came onto our dollar bill under Eisenhower in the 50s. This this rise of kind of spirituality and trust, and it was this wonderful period. What else was true about the fifties, though? There's Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws fully in effect, and the NAACP hanging a flag outside of its office almost regularly, or very regularly. A man was lynched today, and then again a week later, a man was lynched today, trying to tell America what was really going on with regard to to race and relationships, and people, men and women. And so the interesting thing is the, the, the protesters that you see on TV today, a lot of them are shutting down freeways. And we're like, why are they doing that? What a crazy thing to do. And people need to use those freeways. People need to get to hospitals. Why are they doing that? Those freeways being built when blacks didn't even have the opportunity to vote in many southern cities. That didn't come really till 1965 that a lot of those freeways were put right down the middle of African-American communities, bridging from city center out to the suburbs and basically saying as we're coming into the city from our suburbs that you're not allowed to live at, we're not really going to see you. And so taking over and shutting down freeways is a part of protesters saying, do you see us now? And do you know the story of this freeway? And do you know the story of our communities and our families as it goes back? And so we have to begin to, to learn and understand if we're going to have love, we have to have knowledge and depth of insight. I got asked last week, why, what do we do in Bend when it's so white? How do we do this stuff? Do you even know why we're so white in Bend? Let's put up a map that, that I sent to Kip this morning. This, the arrows here are what's called the Great Migration Paths. And so after the turn of the century, when... Um, it was so bad for African Americans in the South with jim Crow laws and, and industrialization was kicking up in u s cities you had people migrate to big cities so detroit philadelphia new york chicago cincinnati and from the South went to these places to try and look for work. They eventually came to Los Angeles, a lot of agriculture, which is what they, a lot of African-Americans did in the South, and eventually Oakland during World War II. Why? Because uh, of the military buildup and shipbuilding. And so what are, what are, in our thinking, two of the most African-American cities on the West Coast? Los Angeles and Oakland, the Bay Area, because they were on the Great Migration Paths. So you never had a large slave population in the Northwest. So that's one reason you don't have a lot of diversity and you don't see any arrows going up there. A couple arrows on different maps will go to Seattle but you don't have a lot of arrows there. Why? Not only was it never initially diverse but we actually had laws on the books in Oregon in the mid 1800s forbidding people of color or mulattoes to settle here. We actually had taxes if you were a person of color that you had to pay every year if you were gonna reside in this state and take a job. And if you talk to some scholars, they'll say if you couldn't pay the tax, you could substitute a whipping as a form of paying your tax for being in Oregon and taking jobs. Interesting thing, that, that purple map down there, where you see the dark purple and the light purple, the dark purple shows um, states that, had, uh, that, that were under the laws, state laws, of Jim Crow, um, segregation and discriminatory laws. The, the light purple are states that had city or local laws that were discriminatory. Do you notice that the whole rest of the country is light purple? It means you had cities that had, had laws on the books that discriminated. Do you know that Bend was, called, um, was one of what was called a sundowner town? Sundowner towns meant that if you were a person of color or a Native American, you, you had to be out of the city by sundown. In other words, when it gets dark and, and we want to feel safe, whatever business you had, you have to be out. I have an African-American friend on the Warm Springs Reservation that grew up in central Oregon, and he used to come to Bend as a kid and walk by stores that said no dogs or Indians allowed. So it's, it's not just an accidental fact that we're as white as we are. Like the Grand Canyon, it doesn't just come from, from, from nowhere. Things are shaped over time you see. And knowing some of the story, and if you want, you can come up, and I've got a list of the laws, the list of the laws where you were able to go claim land, even if it was owned by a Native American, you were just able to go stake a claim on someone else's land in Oregon. I mean, I can give you a list of the laws um, if you want to see them, but knowledge and depth of insight informing our faith, and then we begin to go, you know what, maybe it's not about me having a wonderful plan for my life. Maybe the world's a messier place. Maybe it's tragic out there. Maybe it's gonna end tragic for me or someone I know. Maybe this causes confusion. Maybe, God, I don't understand what you're doing here. Maybe this is painful or hurtful. Maybe I don't have the answers of how to fix this really quick so that we go back to prosperity and celebration. God, I don't know what to do with all this. Enter Lament that doesn't have an end date, doesn't have a life cycle or time frame, that doesn't always resolve, that's a part of the biblical story put in Scripture to teach us what our position and our posture should look like with the brokenness that we see in this world and the prevalent evil that we see in mankind and in our own hearts and that we can learn again as Christians in America not just to hunger for the glory days when there was economic prosperity for some, but to actually go, we want the kingdom of God to be represented on earth for all people, all men, all women, all colors, and that we're not just gonna take the benefits and say, trust us, with trickle down this, or trickle down justice. Martin Luther King, Jr one of the things that he had to do was go to the White House and they kept telling him, look, the Cold War. We don't have time for your issue right now. The Cold War is happening. We don't have time for your issue right now. Um, We're dealing with the Vietnam War. We, We don't have time for this. And King was like, if not now, when? Because if we don't protest and make you see us or grapple with the injustice, we already know what that looks like. It'll just go and go and go. The southern states wouldn't have given up slavery. The southern states wouldn't have given up Jim Crow. The rest of America wouldn't have given up discriminatory laws. They wouldn't have put into practice voter rights so that people of color or poor people had somebody standing there to advocate for them so that they could get the right to vote, so that they could be on juries, and so that they could get people that look like them in elected positions so that the rest of culture might change. I have African-American friends that are every bit as much leaders as I am. And this is a crazy thing that I lead through my emails. I write well. I write fast. I write persuasively. I do my business through my emails. And these, these three particular friends, really interesting. One puts all of his emails into a... A software program he bought that gives alternate readings or renderings of of almost every sentence he creates and he goes and he's able to pick through them another person does all of his writing what writing he does on email in Microsoft Word and then has someone edit it another guy has has a helper someone on his staff that he puts every email through why Because where they grew up in their neighborhoods, the education system wasn't what it was for me. And because of the lack of education in that community, their community values weren't the same for spelling or for punctuation or for grammar. And so when they come to the the national conversation at conferences and business and other places, all of a sudden I look at it and I'm like, why am I able to write like this and they aren't even though they're every bit as gifted as I am? And And I'll have someone email me and say, Race isn't a problem in America unless you make it one. And I say to that person, I don't know what world you're living in if you can't see the disparity that comes because of historical racism and current real-life segregation that was brought on by historical racism. So I'm out of time. We can do some redux um, in a minute. I'm going to close us, and we're going to sing a lament. And so if you'd stand with me, um, the team is going to lead us, coming off the prayer, into a lament, and then as we close, Father, a lot of us are new with, with this idea that we can't fix everything. We're new with this idea that we have to, to sit in the Mass. We're new with this idea of lament. But lament goes way back in our tradition, and I pray that you would call us to faith into that orthodox discipleship following Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't put our hope or our trust in formulas or spiritual niceties or wanting to feel like love is an emotional or sentimental reality that we just have, and so the world should be a great place because of how we feel, but that we would push further, that we would lean harder, that we would go deeper, that we would hunger for knowledge and depth of insight, and that we wouldn't try to always resolve, but that we would sit there oftentimes in sackcloth sackcloth and ashes, and in solidarity with Christian brothers and sisters. No matter what profession, no matter what color, no matter what socioeconomic uh, status that they are, that we would recognize and understand and feel their pain, sit with them and understand that you are the only hope for the world, that all this pain, all this lament has to be directed at you. There's nowhere else we can take it. We pray that in Christ's name.